Howdy, everybody. Welcome back to The Collective. We have another fantastic show for you planned out today, and I'm going to go into this quick little preamble, but before I do that, I just want to say, Jim, good to see you again. Eric, good to see you, have you for the first time. It's yeah, awesome. thanks for having me, man. Been creeping your uh, your page for the last little while, going like, ooh, what's he up to? Ooh, he's doing some good stuff. And Yeah, I want it no other way. Please creep away. <laughs> I can do that. Trust me. Um, now, before we get into the topic of the day, I do want to hit a couple of points. First thing, none of us are doctors, as far as I know. Jim, Eric, you guys aren't doctors, right? Okay, no. so none of us are doctors. Anything right, that we the do, timer. It's your I time understand. to waste. It, you're just wasting my time now. Here it is. There we uh, go. So anything that we do say or anything that we do come up with, it is from our experience and our um lives so do take it with a grain of salt if you are feeling agitated or triggered or something is really bothering you while watching this by all means bounce out and uh, you can either return later after you talk to a friend or a loved one or a doctor or whatever you need to talk to to regulate from there uh, if you do have any questions or comments please hit us up in the comments we do read them all and we get we hit each one of them and um i think that's it minute 20 not bad I, oh, and it is Men's Mental Health Month. So we're uh, going to be hitting different else? facets. I think that's it. Any other buttons to click now I that think. we're at a minute 30? Oh, actually, there is one more button I should All click, right. which is what everybody else should be clicking. The <laughs> like button, the subscribe button, and the notification bell. Make sure you uh, get your little email in the morning. Okay, minute 40. Thank you for the reminder. Yeah, I <laughs> there's a little thing, uh, Eric and Jim, if you haven't noticed, uh, there's this preamble that we've been setting up for the last little while, and... Sean gave me 90 seconds at the very We've beginning. gamified it. Just mm. like time mm -hmm. to play it up. What's the record? The longest record? 17, 18 minutes. Seven, oh, yeah, that's seven to solid. eight days. You, uh, you missed, you missed the algorithm. I missed, yeah, I missed it completely. Yeah. Um, that was, we got into a conversation before I even got the preamble in, and it was like 17 or 18 minutes before I was like, oh, yeah, right. We need to actually hit this. Uh, <laughs> and speaking of which, Daniel. Hey, what's up, buddy? Salty Jinx is still working on that 90 seconds, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the viewers are in on the game, too, which is always fun. Now, we are going to be getting into workplace mental health. And I think this is an important subject because I, I find a lot of people will separate their daily lives, their daily mental health, everyday stuff from work. And there will be a sharp divide between either wearing the uniform or putting a suit on or getting into work versus being at home and right off the bat i was going to ask have you guys noticed that or do you find that you're they bleed into each other or do you make put a line down the middle what do you think? who wants to take it I, Jim? I uh, yeah i definitely think there's a there's an easy line to draw down the middle of that um i think there's another line you could possibly draw between the the job itself and then all of the factors at work Mm. Um, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, people, um, human resources, uh, time, uh, all the relationships you have at work. So, um, just think from a first responder perspective, there's, there's the stress, uh, at work that the job entails, but then all of the, uh, the backend factors that, that come with that. Mm. That's a good point. Eric, you got any thoughts? I think it, it could be a mess. I mean, it depends on the person. Uh, for me, it bleeds together really closely. Uh, I've seen, I've tried at times to compartmentalize everything and it works until it doesn't. And I, I think regardless of whatever balance it is, as long as you pay attention and pay mind to all these little factors, right? Uh, as Jim pointed out, you have people that you, you deeply care about at work and first response and military and all these more dangerous jobs where 
the the concern is very real but at the same time you can't just simply turn off your work brain especially if you are you know engaged in a more dangerous line of work you know when you're in your time off you're still thinking in that vein of your job uh and vice versa you know you can't just ignore your phone um that generally doesn't go well at home if you don't respond to unless there's some crazy expectation set right but if you don't respond to uh, any loved one texts or calls all shift long then uh the mind can play some dangerous games there that's for sure sean what do you think yeah for sure uh, i just mentioned in my live ig chat that <clears throat> probably i've half of my life or half of my careers of being workplace with uh, lots of other people there and then the other half of my careers of being just me uh by myself and uh, with with like this is my workplace right now believe it or not and so um there's there's times when i have easily observe the poorly done job of moving from work to home and then home back to work. And I just want to raise this, that I don't think it's a, a one-way calibration. So when you leave your high-speed, low-drag job that evening and you're starting to drive home, of course, you've got to figure out the right velocity that when you walk through that door, uh, you know, you, you can manage that well. But conversely, when you're waking up in the morning and heading out the front door, heading for your work, you've got to then recalibrate back to work mode. So it's not just all the damages, I'll call it damage, all the damages done when you go from work to home. It, the other way around is also something that needs to be calibrated, but maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later in the, in the podcast. For sure. Uh, I think that's a really good point. Everyone should have the ritual. I think if you're not planned or intentional about it, then you risk not preparing either way, right? You have to prepare for home to get home and have success in that. Um, myself, many of my colleagues have had made the mistake of not transitioning your brain into being there for your loved one, for your spouse, for your family. Um, and you're not present. Uh, that's probably the better end of the spectrum. And if you're just stressed about a lot of things and you're not engaged, then that's another thing. Um, similarly, you obviously need to be engaged at work and right. So, um, for my boss, I actually like this uh, this tip. He said when he would drive home off duty, he wouldn't listen to music, he wouldn't listen to a podcast. Um, he's in a you know he's in a a police car, but it's not marked, so it's not like this obvious target. But he would think about his kids and his wife and what kind of day they had or what kind of week they had and the type of energy that he knew that he could bring uh, to provide them with what they needed. Uh, but that was a nice little you know kind of anecdote that. I've, I've chewed on and internalized and tried to find a version that worked for me. Hmm. I like that. John, what do you got? Yeah. So the, uh, the reason that I wanted to raise up that, uh, it's not a one way street, it's a two way street is I, I never would have considered that if not for the fact that I was kind of really front and center slapped in the face with the realization after I just finished uh, my first career, which was the military. And so uh, that morning, I was a team leader in uh, Tier 1 uh, unit. And then uh, by, the, by lunchtime, I was driving down to become, while well, I was a civilian at uh, the moment that I left through those gates, I got into my car and started driving down to the Ontario Police College to become a use of force instructor that evening. And so uh, what, what I, I didn't know what I was stepping into. I didn't know what I was going to be facing, but I did know when I got there and within a matter of a couple of days, I realized that I'd gone from about a million miles an hour to about three miles an hour in, in my, 
in in everything, my mind, my emotions, my my the requirement to pick up the pace. It just was it was way slower than I was used to. And and that that move from one to the other really was a shocker. It really woke me up to holy moly, I've been going warp factor three for so long. I'd forgotten what I'll I'll call it regular people do. And uh, it just felt like everything was in molasses and slow motion. And it was such a delta or such a difference that it was easily observable, not only within me, but if I stepped out of myself and looked at the problem, I could see how evident it was that, wow, I was doing this and now I'm doing that. And so that kind of woke me up a little bit to then start paying attention to the rest of my life, which is the more nuanced aspect of going from, we'll call it three miles an hour to two miles an hour as I get home or whatever the case is in what other careers I had. So it was like a, not a big red panic button of, whoa, you better do this better. It was, it was more of a wake up call as to, oh, there's velocities to this game. And I've only been used to warp factor three velocity. So I had to get right with that synchronizing of ebbing and flowing uh, for sure. Mm. I like that. Jim, you got them? Yeah, it's interesting you uh, you bring that up. So I guess that's making the assumption that everyone in the organization is is working the same speed or has the same task. Yes. Uh, I'm I'm just thinking from a from a personal perspective is, you know, group one is warp factor one, and group ten that is potentially supporting that is is just doing a different job and used to a different pace of life. So trying to trying to deal with those internal stresses between uh, subgroups within an organization is yeah. another another layer. Sure mm. is. I do really like the uh, the idea of the two-way street. I had a friend of mine who <clears throat> explained to me that every day when he came off shift, he had a closet in his garage. And uh, he had his civilian clothes in the garage. And so he had this little ritual, this little routine where he would come home and he would not enter the house. He would just enter the garage and he would strip down, take the uniform off, put his regular clothes on. And it was in those moments of processing getting his stuff on of switching that uniform that he was able to process the day kind of breathe it all out and then he could enter the house as himself or as dad or as whatever title he wanted to put on it instead of the officer yeah. and it uh eric when you're telling me that story about your boss processing the day on the drive home i think it's very similar and i was wondering if you guys had similar rituals or something where you were able to turn it on, turn it off based off of whatever ritual you were doing. Yeah, I think that's huge. Um, there's, you can connect so many feelings and mentalities to the ritual and the movements you do. Um, I know that's very commonplace for police, at least around here is to, you know, uh, especially have a take home car, like a marked unit um, to, you know, don and doff your uniform in the garage, na namely because you run into a lot of, yucky things you know you don't want your boots anywhere near the inside of the house uh but i think that is a a true mental shift right um from you working the majority of my career in uniform on patrol um i carry myself differently i i speak differently my wife makes fun of it you know even when we're dating she's like i know exactly uh who's on the other line of the phone at least within a small degree like if it's a a buddy from work if it's a buddy not from work if it's someone else from work that you're not as close with Oh, and if it's one of your supervisors, you get really serious. You use bigger words. You get a deeper tom, you know, timbre in your voice. You think, yeah, right. And so she'd pick up all that. And so it's almost like you know, you put on 
make this joke about this kind of superhero uniform. Um, but in some ways you, you do. And I was just doing an interview with someone where I can recognize going back so many times where I do feel like I was able to hold it together better and suppress emotions. Not saying that's a good thing during uh, men's mental health, but in the moment, you know, in crisis for someone, a grieving family, I had it all together. Right. But if, if I would have been in my normal street clothes and given, you know, mom or dad a hug, I probably would have broke down with them. Uh, mm -hmm. But in the uniform, I was like, hey, I, this officer is doing OK and he's going to hold back the tears and not a thing right now. Did, did you feel that uh, in those moments, you know, you've got your uniform on, did it kind of feel like you had a big S on your chest, like Superman style in the sense of you've got to like you've got to represent you've got to maintain the peace you've got to keep mm. things cool you've got to be that beacon of hope and all of that good stuff did, did you get that feeling with the uniform on yeah for sure and what that meant really evolved through you know i've been in for going on 16 years it really evolved a lot based on how i viewed uh my role um a lot of it had to do with my experience and um, even my emotional maturity and my confidence um you know you think you have to be this big bad something as a new officer as a young man and then you realize no you just got to be a person but you have all these tools and all this training and this the legality that you can utilize to help people um but then i was able to really i mean empathize and connect uh which is fantastic and i highly recommend it to people doing the job you're going to do a much better job and you don't sacrifice yourself as a result um but yeah a lot of that kind of that strength and that sense that you're carrying this uniform this symbol um, because eyes are on you and people are expecting something from you, um, which can be good. And sometimes if it's metabolized the wrong way, it, it can be not so good. And did you, uh, did you do that, uh, through osmosis? So you observed your, whoever your mentor was in the early days or, uh, other street, uh, units, or is it something that you just picked up along the way or, or did you have someone who really shaped your understanding of how to do things better? Yeah, I think that's, that's huge. Um, I think osmosis and just, uh, mimicking is such a big part of training, whether it's intended or unintended. You know, we just look at these examples and uh, whether they're attractive or sexy or just the only examples that we see, um, it happens, right? It happens with parenting. It happens with everything, every trade, every job. So, um, yeah, so I, I think for new people, be mindful of what you're around, what you're going to sponge up, whether intended or unintended, uh, good attitude, toxic attitude. And for those that have been on the job, whatever the job is, be aware of the things you say, the way you carry yourself, even if you're not the trainer, if you're just in the room, because everyone's picking that up. Mm -hmm. Jimmy, got any thoughts? Yeah, my uh, my ritual, I almost feel it's uh, cheating a bit. Um, short drive home, uh, my wife works in the same building, so we get to we get to talk it out kind of at the end of the day, and nice. uh, we, we put a line, uh, you know, when we get home, we, we stop talking about work and do something else. Um, I, I used to live on the, uh, on the East coast and there was a lot of, uh, transition workers back and forth, uh, you know, three weeks on two weeks off kind of thing. I always, uh, I always looked at them. I'm like, what are the, you know, the, the time frame is obviously quite a bit longer, uh, between that transition from work and getting home. So I was, I was always interested in, on how they relax and, and make that, uh, that distinction, I guess, from that longer work period to the, the longer rest period. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think there was much difference is, is kind of what I found out. Um, they they did the same thing, just, uh, you know, they had a 10-hour flight as opposed to a 20-minute drive home. So 
Mm, interesting. Uh, some uh, that did make me think of something. So <clears throat> you're probably referring to uh, maybe workers going up to Fort McMurray or some such thing where they're yep. doing, yeah. So. Um, depending on their role or depending on what their job is. So if you're a guy jumping on a plane and flying to a job where you can literally fall asleep at the control panel uh, for three weeks and then fly back home, there's not a whole lot to process. Mm -hmm. And so if you're out in the field and you're responsible for maybe 30 guys and you're running a, a difficult uh, task uh, team, then you know that's a whole different job than uh, hanging out a, a control panel and seeing if the green light turns red eventually, which it never does. And so there's not much to process there for a guy who's got a 10, fl 10 hour flight back home. But uh, for the guy who, um, you know, every day that he goes to work uh, up in Fort Mac, something's burning down. Uh, so for three weeks, he's got 21 days of fires uh, on that flight back. He needs a couple of laps around the world in that plane to process all of that. And so, you know, the, uh, what made me think of that, Jim is for, for myself, when, uh, Seb and I were over in Haiti, uh, when we, uh, came back in, I got a, I was busy from the moment the flight landed until I got home. And so when I got home, I just said to my family, Hey, you know what? I, I kind of need a little bit of time. I just, I just need some time to, be quiet and just think about some things. And, and by the next day I was good, but I needed some time to myself because I hadn't had the time on the flight. You know, here's your pretzels. Here's it. Can you move your seat up? Can you, where's your luggage? All of the stuff. It, it was, it was a timeline that was busy from the moment I hit Canada till I got to my house. And so, cause I didn't have the time really to process any of it. And because it, there was a lot going on, not only it past, present and future, I still hadn't had a chance to work through all of that. So I had to give my, my family the heads up. Uh, yeah, just uh, give me a moment. And so I think on this conversation uh, for, for yourself, Jim, I'm not making the connection that you weren't busy. I've, I may never have been as busy as you have, but somehow you found a way in the drive home with your wife to get a good uh, homeostasis or what you whatever you want to call it. But for there's times in my life where I could have, I could still be driving somewhere and it's not enough time to process some of the things that uh, uh, go through my head. So I think you've got to make the time, but you've also got to consider the velocity or the intensity of the moment that you need to move through that time. That's a very good point. Eric or Jim, you got any thoughts on that? Uh, it, it brings up a thought of, uh, you know, this, this piece I learned and maybe this is common knowledge for you gentlemen, but um, when they talk about post-traumatic stress and how the incidents uh, for veterans shot way up after World War II, uh, because during World War II, everyone had uh, the transit time on a ship. They literally had to cross an ocean to get back to the U.S. or Canada, right? Like, they had all that time to have peer support kind of built into it. You had weeks together with your, with your, your buddies to talk things through, to process, to marinate on things, whereas as soon as the the advent of modern aircraft being able to span an ocean uh, pretty quickly um it just speaks to that and it's only become faster right and i think you you point out a good point of uh distractions right the pretzels and the the other noise now you can actually have your devices available so i mean we have these devices where you can be reached in any regard on any platform and so you really don't have any any space for yourself unless you guard it unless you build it in 
And if you're not being really intentional with your now, then you can you can be in Haiti climbing onto a plane and then you can hear on the tarmac and look up from your phone and think, wow, I'm in Rosalind, I'm back home. And so there's, because we're not present, because maybe we're just, we don't want to process what uh, just happened. So we're in our phone or whatever the case is. The point is that, it has to be an intentional or a present or a now process where you're not duck dodging and diving the thing that you really need to consider or or fix or tweak or rejig in your mind so that when you get home, you have taken care of that business uh, to some degree. I like that. <clears throat> Jimmy, got any thoughts? I was kind of zoning out here. I was thinking about the uh, the relationship between the uh, the the stress of the job, the type of job, and the length of time needing to compress, uh, and then laying the you know the individual personality on top of that, and the uh, I guess their uh, their resilience, uh, the nature of their own resilience, and, and how that plays in. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure I'll have anything to contribute more than uh, more more just a question as to you know is is there a correlation? Is there something that uh, certain individuals with certain personality type and the type of job they do and the length of time they have to get home or decompress? Uh, is there something specific that we could target? Hmm. I've, I've thought about it a lot. I mean, I didn't just casually raise the uh, subject up because I it just popped into my head. I mean, I have thought about it. And, and if we get even an inch further down that uh, forward trajectory on uh, getting a little bit wiser on this, man, <laughs> bring it. Because I could use another inch further down the, the thought process of how all of these interplay vectors uh, in we'll call it a three-dimensional model that each individual fits into uniquely there. I, I don't feel there's any one way to answer the greater question that we're talking about. They're all unique solutions, but I do believe there's commonalities. And I think within a three-dimensional space, if we want to call it a thought construct, there are solutions in there that are not quite universally applicable, but certainly an, on, on a generalistic perspective, I think it could Hurt or help a lot of people if we could form something up uh, today. Yeah, the reason I uh, the reason I thought of that is you brought up that uh, you know I need every minute of that ten hours on the plane to decompress or or, or whatever. Um, I, I don't know if I want ten hours. You know, I, I kind of right. stir crazy yet. So I'm right. just thinking that that personal uh, perspective on how you manage stress. And I, I you know I, I don't think I could handle ten hours of non stress. I need twenty minutes to reset and then try something else. Right? So, <laughs> yes, right. Good point, <laughs> Eric. You got a thought? Yeah, I think it is so individualistic, like most things, right? And I, I think to Jim's point, that could probably create a formula that makes sense based on personality type and based on the actual type of stressor. Because even what my point earlier was, uh, you know, being at work and having the home life in your brain, um, a lot of people might intentionally and might be a good idea, especially depending on your assignment and especially your role to to put your your personal phone on airplane mode, right? Because that distraction could be exactly that. If you need to be mission focused, you know, you're on a SWAT op, like some of my friends have been, I hope that they don't have their personal phones, you know, buzzing and interacting of, you know, these little things. And so if, if there is a, a home life expectation that's set saying, hey, love you, uh, until you hear anything else, like everything's good. And I just got to focus on what I'm doing, right? And so that compartmentalization, I think that I, I might have poo-pooed a little bit I think it depends on the context. Um, you know, we don't want to over compartmentalize and not address things, but it can be very mission effective in both regards, right? Mm. That's a great point. John, what do you got? Yeah, I 
at, at one point, I'm, I'm going to regret saying this, but uh, some time ago, quite a long time ago, I started drawing it out, just a little flow chart, just an if this, then that. So are you stressed? Yes. No. Are you happy? Yes. No. You know, that whole flowy flow chart. Uh, so I broke it out and, and, and I just, I dumped it. I had something that was reasonably tangible that would have been helpful for for others in the future or even for this conversation right now that, you know, I, I would have been better able to deliver the thought processes that I've considered on this broader subject, but I threw it away. And so uh, what I what I would love to see somehow, somewhere in some institution is just a simple poster, man. You know, like where you can walk down the hallway and you can see that and it stops you in your tracks because it's so simplistic. You know, what I see is a lot of efforts from HR departments or from uh, the latest PhD who studied stress or whatever the case is. And as I'm going past the poster, it's given me stress because there's too many colors. It's too complex. It's too what? I got to stand here all day long and think about this. You kidding me? So if there was just a simple yes, no happy, sad, angry, not, whatever, the flow chart of life at work and at home. If, if it was just a quick scan of, I got to level four and I'm good to go, bam, I'm out the door. Uh, I need to go to level six. Whoa. I'm still working through the flow chart and then I'm at level 12. I should probably talk to someone. And so I just thought back in the day it was, would be valuable, but anyway, uh, maybe it'll be valuable in the future. Perhaps I, I like that a lot. And isn't that what we do here? Try and figure out how to make, get a binary answer out of a massively complex yeah. question. <laughs> yeah. But the, the next piece is we try to, we try to deliver some sort of actionable items or mm -hmm. something that someone can sink their teeth into or whatever, except dot, dot, dot. I'm just the idea guy. I don't want to create the poster. I'm sure there's some big brain out there who's way better at posters than I am. There's the idea. Go make it happen, big brain. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. I get more work. Huzzah. Um, I did, so I got a couple comments here, um, but I, I just wanted to point this out. I think it's kind of interesting is that we started this as a workplace mental health discussion. And the first thing we started talking about was the home life. Yeah. And how mm. important, and I just wanted to bring that up and how important that is in your workplace mental health is your home life. And, you know, if your home life is in shambles, your work life is going to be a challenge, to say the least. Um, any other thoughts, though, before I kick off some comments here? Uh, yeah, I'll, just, but, I'll get you here. I'll get you next, Eric. You go ahead, Jim. Yeah, no, I just, I had one thought where you're, uh, you're bringing up what are, what are some of these stressors that you you experience at work and what causes stress at work. Um, obviously the, the home life is one, uh, a big one. Um, the one I was thinking of was, uh, was just the uncertainty at work that uh, a lot of people face. And I'm just thinking in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of uncertainty uh, for a lot of people in a lot of different industries, uh, whether it be, you know, the job itself or promotion or being passed over all those kind of things. And uh, you guys had mentioned uh, on a previous podcast, I can't remember which one, but um, just, just attacking that uncertainty within your sphere of influence. So if that, that uncertainty is the thing that's causing you stress at work, doing whatever you can to create some certainty around it was, um, I know something you mentioned and probably something that would help. But. That's a great point. Eric. Yeah. I was just thinking about, uh, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin is, is he pretty, uh, discussed up in your region? I have not heard of him. 
don't recognize the name. Yeah, so he uh, he has a book, emotional law enforcement, uh, emotional survival for law enforcement, but it talks a lot about the hyper vigilance kind of roller coaster and the period it takes to decompress from you know a like a police hyper vigilance. And I think that there's definitely a huge carryover with uh, military that are in you know dangerous zones. Um, but saying that, I, I might misquote it, but it's somewhat like 72 hours for you to come back down completely off of that hypervigilance. And then we hear that number and we recognize, well, that's not, that's longer than a normal weekend, uh, you know, with your days off. So to know that you never fully come back down and you need vacations. And I think that's the, the point that you started kind of hinting at is like, Hey, what are the action items, uh, the tips that we can use and, and keep in mind to help us address these things, um, whether it's mitigating the stress or the burden of the stress as we transition back and forth. And Jim, you'd mentioned uh, not maybe having clarity at work uh, for some people. They're they have uh, they they're not sure how they fit into the organization uh, versus two years ago. We'll call it. Uh, let's, it doesn't matter what institution it is. If you're not really clear on your role or your forward trajectory or how you're being helpful or what you can get better at, if you've got poor leadership, obviously that's a, a great creator of stress. And so the idea being that uh, as an as an institution, uh, a lot of these things just simply come down to poor leadership. Workplace mental health is, I feel, the, the greatest impactor is just bad leadership. And uh, I understand that most jobs have a, a lot of stress and, and and certainly in law enforcement, it's, I, I don't know, is there a more stressful job out there than law enforcement? I'm, I think it's certainly top three. And so um, these stressors, and to your point, Eric, on 72 hours kind of coming out of that elevated state, it's impossible unless you're on a vacation. And then when you're on vacation, you're just thinking about getting back to work maybe. And it's a wicked, uh, it's a wicked problem to solve. But I think that with leadership passing down the message, if, if someone would have said to me, Hey boys, you got a 72 hours until you're back to baseline. How do we either compress that timeline or how do we remain cognizant of that timeline so that as you're coming down off that power curve, you can understand, generally speaking, where you sit on the scale, 2 out of 10, 7 out of 10, whatever the case is. And at least it, you're aware of what you're working with as a general rule of thumb in order to understand why you feel the way you feel. And if you feel that way and you want to feel a little bit better, now you've got to extend it out another 12 hours or 16 hours or 24 hours, rejig your shift schedule with your supervisor, et cetera, et cetera. And by saying it's poor leadership uh, in some institutions, not all leadership, and it's not more than 50%, but enough poor leadership will create mega problems. But I don't want to lay the finger or the blame all on uh, leadership. I will say that we're equally responsible as uh, subordinates to send that message up the chain that I just don't know why I feel this way, or I don't understand how to do this better, or I've got this monkey on my back that I want to get off. Uh, how do we do that? And if as a subordinate, I knew that 72 hours was the general rule of thumb, and it may or may not be, but we'll just throw that out there for now, 
then I've got to be observing myself and I've got to be feeding that data straight back up to my chain of command so that maybe they're forming patterns on the institutional patterns that are happening amongst all the troops or all the frontline or what have you. It's interesting you, uh, you bring up leadership there. It's, um, it, it, I guess that definition has changed uh, over the very short yeah, period, I guess. Um, the, uh, the one thing I see causing stress now uh, very rapidly compared to what it used to in the past is, is the, the communication around that leadership. I've had some great leaders who just, you know, they, they didn't know how to talk to, um, I guess I'm a first generation millennial, but there's, there's groups of people now in the organizations and all organizations that have had information their entire life that need more information or need an explanation. And they will, they will go forth and do a task with that explanation. Um, so, you know, I, I see that causing a lot of stress as well, not necessarily the leadership, but the, the, the amount of communication that's coming, coming through. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Eric, you got any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, when uh, when I was told about this this theme, you know, workplace wellness or workplace health, um, mental health is the concept that I was thinking about was psychological safety. And so you talk about all the uncertainty in a lot of jobs, like the job market and the economy, for sure. But then in psychological safety, you know, we talk about leadership and do you feel supported? And we think about our sphere of influence and we like to think that we can support our peers and hopefully our, our direct boss gives us some sort of insulation. You know, we talk about the challenges of law enforcement and so many of them being uh, public facing and, you know, the political scrutiny. Uh, but if you feel like all that is against you and then you're uncertain about your leadership and a lot of that can be, as Jim pointed out, communication, right? We, you know, we've been talking about generational differences in communication for for a lot longer than just the current youngest generation, but it continues to be a thing. So we don't have that, I guess, that generational awareness or acumen to help bridge those gaps, to, to create unity and really strengthen the, the team and the culture, then we're definitely at a loss and it's definitely feeling very vulnerable. And I, I want to take the opportunity to clear up my casual comment earlier about leadership is a big problem to some degree in institutions. I, it doesn't have to be 1,000 bad leaders. It only needs to be one. Mm -hmm. The right bad leader in the right bad place is going to blow it for a lot of people. And so the whatever institution it is, it doesn't matter. It could be the coffee industry. And the right guy or girl will rock it. The wrong guy or girl will destroy it. And so... If you're, if, if anyone out there is struggling with, we'll call it bad leadership, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, and it's just an individual, figure out how to get out from underneath that yoke of bad leadership. Uh, if, if you can't figure it out yourself, start asking around without causing too much turmoil. But if it's just one individual, well, you got to get around it. And if you can't work with it, then, you know, sort or, it out. Or attack it head on. You know, mm. Maybe maybe that person just needs some some help or some mentorship from from one of their subordinates to, to become sure. a better leader, better better communicate. That's Agreed. A good and, point. And yeah. and from and I thought of that because of Eric was talking about the uh, generational uh, not differences, but the approaches to leadership are uh, a little bit unique to each generation. And uh, like I'm old school, and if if I'm coming at someone old school and and they're new school and they're offended because I'm too old school. Well, it's their job to let me know because I'm just doing me. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just trying to get the job done in an effective and efficient manner as, 
as directed to me by my chain of command. And so if I'm doing it wrong or too hard or too fast or too insensitive or too whatever, hit me up, let me know. Uh, I've been called all the things, so I'm used to it. So just, just calibrate me to how you like to be led. And as long as it's not inauthentic to how I lead, then I'll adjust. Great point, Eric. Yeah, it's that ownership, right? And it doesn't do any good to point fingers unless you've done unless you've done everything within reason, right? Which includes, like Jim said, lead up, right? Some people need to be shown the way. And if you ask, hey, have you had an ineffective boss? Everyone has can say yes. And then if you ask the follow-up, do you think that was due to lack of confidence and or competence? And for I would imagine the majority would keep their hand up, right? Saying, yes. Yeah. So as your subordinate, you're the close as the subordinate, you're the closest ones to the problems. You, you might be the, the best bridge to the solution. So help them along, right? Uh, give them the information, give them the action items or the study guide, and then maybe they can, they can figure out how to, how to weaponize that and be more effective. Um, I, I will inject this too, because this is a lot of ownership and just perspective. Like we can control our perspective. And uh, it, I've also heard this, this good anecdote that, hey, you can be really uh, frustrated with an ineffective boss or some of these more checked out, disengaged bosses, that allows a window where you can take on more and you can lead the way and you can lead the solution for your team. And a lot of these disengaged bosses won't fight it. They'll say, okay, yeah, sounds good. And they can put their rubber stamp on it. And maybe it's all fine as long as you didn't have this, this maybe unreasonable expectation that they were going to be this inspirational leader. Maybe they don't need to be that. Maybe you can be that and they can just be the placeholder. I agree. And that's the difference between a static mindset and victim mentality versus a, versus a growth mindset and leadership by example. Yeah, I do. <clears throat> I do. I would caution one thing though, is to not take too much, right? You, you shouldn't be doing somebody else's job while they sit behind a desk. A hundred percent, if you know what I mean. And mm -hmm. a lot of times that can lead into the actual stressor because now you're doing two jobs or three jobs or 10 jobs or, and you start to get used to taking on other people's work, which leads to taking on other people's stress, which leads on to taking other people. It is a slippery slope. I'll put it that yeah, way. And people like I've done it myself where I've become resentful mm -hmm. or bro, are you kidding me? Like just freaking pick up the pace and at least do half your job. And if it goes on too long, I start getting resentful for all kinds of reasons because mm -hmm. I'm not at home while he is because he's getting paid twice as much as me and I'm not. And all of those good things, you know, all this goofy little ideas that run through your head that I'm not a robot, so I think them. And then as I process those, whether I want to pretend that I'm not getting resentful, uh, that I guess that's one way to treat it. But I recognize that at some point I'll start getting resentful about dude, you're a slacker. And that gets under my skin for whatever reason. And, and I can, I can come home and, and, and do all kinds of things to scrub that from my head, but I'm there the next day thinking, bro, are you kidding me right now? So you, you have to figure out not how to work through that at home. you got to figure out how to work through that at work. Mm -hmm. 100%. 100%. <clears throat> and any other thoughts I got, uh, I got a bunch of comments here. <laughs> Anything else that uh, you guys want to hit on before we jump into these? Okay. So uh, going back to the beginning here, we had uh, Carl 
Good to see you. Checking in. He's knitting. Walt's tuning in. Salty Jinx, I have one of those trades that doesn't shut down at night. And if the news is on, you can't get away from it. It took years to adjust to cutting out the noise and leaving it there. So here's a question then, Salty. Put it in the comments here. What did you do? How did you figure out to cut out the noise? And then we'll uh, we'll throw that up in a second. Uh, Doc C. Does Eric hang out with non-law enforcement friends? He says, I have found that police officers that are friends that weren't law enforcement seem to be able to decompress and not feel as if they were a cop. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, I do. Um, and I'm a strong advocate. I'm, I feel fortunate that I came in, um, you know, I had a lot of really close friends from college and they've, they've stuck, we've stuck by each other, um, you know, raising families alongside kind of thing. So um, I'll say it's double-edged, right? I do have really close friends that are cops that we actually do a pretty good job not talking about cop stuff all the time. Um, ironically, especially early in the career, not so much now uh, with my close friends, but early in the career, whenever I'd be with my non-law enforcement friends, it was all about work, right? Because everyone's curious. Everyone wants to hear the stories and the exciting mm -hmm. things. And so it became snapping back into work life. Whereas um, a lot of what was understood went unsaid, you know, for the guys that I worked day to day with and got really close with at work. Um, so it is kind of ironic how that works at times. But, um, but Academy, uh, luckily back then and still is uh, preaching, hey, live outside the blue world. Uh, that's your friends. That's your hobbies. Uh, make sure that you maintain all those things because you need to not just be a cop. 100%. What about you, that's, Jim? That's awesome. Uh, so, yes, I, I make an attempt. I, To be honest, I do a pretty poor job of it. Uh, just I, I find that the, um, the, the type of industry congregates together. Um, you know, if, if you work shift work, those type of people tend to understand that, you know, I got to be up at night. I'm not going to answer you at 8 a.m. every morning. Um, so, you know, you see cops, nurses, uh, all those type of people kind of congregate together because they, they understand the shift work. Um, I'm sure military people kind of congregate because I've, I've never been deployed away from my family for a year in a war zone. So um, it, it's hard to get that if you if you haven't been doing that or haven't experienced that. So I, I think it's just natural for people to, to congregate so they so they can have conversations that don't revolve around that hardship at work. Um, you know, it's a stereotypical thing. Whenever you get in a room with a bunch of non-cops, it's like, Hey, I got, I got a question about that traffic ticket. Um, <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? So it's, it, it's kind of natural just to, to congregate and, and so you don't have to talk about the work stuff and you can so talk true. about the, the other stuff. It's a great thought. Eric, uh, Sean, you got any thoughts? Yeah, I do. And it's for our two Leos, uh, currently. So, uh, I, I spent just shy of a year at the Ontario Police College as a civilian teaching use of force, as I've already said. But I'm I'm not a police officer, so I've never done a bunch of roles within the policing industry. I only understand them through not casual observation, but from pretty steep conversations with friends who have been in those various roles, et cetera. So I'm going to draw a comparison now uh, to my former career, and it should play out into the policing industry. And then I'm curious as to whether you guys have, have noticed this and if you feel that there is a path forward for some of these individuals. So back to it. When I was on the teams in JTF2, of course, because we were, I'll say we were so top secret and so tight and so non-existent, that if I did have any spare time, which I didn't, uh, I wouldn't have been hanging out with uh, people who weren't on the team. Because what do you even talk about? Oh, I'm a janitor. Uh, I, I drive around on Mark Suburbans as a janitor. And so um, it, there's just things that we couldn't talk about. And we were s 
so busy and so tight. There was no civilian friends back then. And so um, I now look at the policing industry and think, well, all the undercover guys, all of the all of the girls or guys that are in specialists, we'll call them elite units, where they can't move out of their role that they've been placed into because that's a 24 and 7 role. And uh, I'm sure there's uh, some teams or roles that you can identify right now, It probably undercover drugs or gangs or whatever, where they have to live that lifestyle and never, ever come out of it. And so I'm interested to hear if there are things in place for these kind of individuals to help them either during the um, this 24 and 7 role that they're in or once they're out of it, if there's some sort of professional decompression phase and et cetera, et cetera. Who wants to take that know. first? I don't know directly for a, you know, deep undercover. Our department doesn't have something like that. Um, however, I'll say like a, a, a related idea is, uh, you know, there's, I think some departments are getting better about um, building in a standard mental health check, things like that, uh, especially for some of these higher trauma roles, um, you know, crimes against children being a significant one. I hear that being socialized a lot more. I do know that there are some departments that have actually gone to that for all officers, you know, uh, maybe once a year, it's a required check-in with a psych doc. Um, maybe you sit there with your arms crossed, you don't say anything, or maybe you engage in a conversation or you, you don't want to say anything or ask any questions and they just provide some training to you, you know, about decompression methods and things. So um, I think that's a huge progression if we can keep that, that unit moving and that kind of measure moving. What do you think, Jim? It's funny you mentioned that. I'm just thinking about the, uh, the undercover world. We, we do have a, obviously a very robust national undercover program and I have absolutely no idea what they do because I don't hang out with them. Um, I'm, I'm assuming they probably stick, like you said, John, to that, uh, that, that group of people who who know what that's about and what they can talk about. So, um, yeah, sorry, I have nothing to offer on that. I, I don't know that's what okay. the, the undercover people do. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It kind of goes to the point though, is the fact that <clears throat> they're probably pretty tight and they're probably pretty tight lipped because they have to be. Yeah, and, and, you know, the stories that have come to mind uh, in respect to like, we'll call it deep, deep undercover, if that means anything, the individual who's uh, now infiltrated whatever organization, and he or she has to be in that role continuously, those aren't typically teams, it's an individual, mm -hmm. and they're dangling out in the wind all by themselves, and maybe feeling unsupported or unloved, or even unplanned uh, to some degree. And so the for these unique individuals, maybe there's only 50 of them in Canada. Maybe there's 150 of them in Canada. Maybe there's a thousand. It doesn't matter what the number is, but it's more than one. And uh, I think that, that those people that are in these deep, deep roles, when they come out, I mean, they probably don't just say to themselves, well, that was fun. I'll just put my feet up now and uh, I'm just going to retire. <laughs> I, I doubt that's how it's done. At least I hope it's not done like that. But uh, maybe in the future, if either of you ever bump into anything in respect to some sort of a um, a strategic or a, a, a formal process that helps people that are deep, deep undercover move through back into, we'll call it, quote unquote, normal life, I'd be fascinated to see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, any other thoughts? I got some more comments right here okay let's uh dive right into these then so um 
Carl, I'll get to your question here in a second. I just want to run through a couple of these beforehand. Uh, it says, Glenn, Glenn says, personally, I have a daily routine to get back to baseline after shift and an elongated routine after finishing a block. That makes sense. Having two separate ones. I like that. Mm. Uh, Doxy says he's good, Eric. Uh, Dr. Gilmartin. I'm going to look him up because I would definitely like to hear read about that. Uh, that's part of the other question. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, Glenn, from my short experience of speaking with people who I look up to in law enforcement, knowing where a job ends is also crucial. Mm. That's a good point. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, follow-on uh, question to Glenn. Was that something that was explained to you formally uh, while you're going through the system, uh, uh, coming up in the system? Or is that something that you've just picked up in casual observation in the platoon room? That's a great question. Uh, I'm sure he'll hit us back shortly. Carl says, agreed. Stress from bad leadership can cripple an organization. Absolutely, it can. And Seb, the Slav commander, he's in the house. Uh, leadership is a critical piece, but not necessarily management. Everyone is responsible to contribute to everyone's wellness, including optimizing their own lifestyle to better contribute to the collective. Yeah. And I have oh. heard Seb say this before recently in, uh, in one of our podcasts that uh, in a room, in a platoon room, we'll call it, uh, there's a leader at the front maybe talking about leadership things or maybe management things. But uh, everyone who's sitting down in a seat facing the front of the room is responsible to be their own leader and lead those around them. 100 percent um <clears throat> salty gets back to us with an answer from earlier he says uh after years of letting it eat me up i found that physical training and personal development love the book meditations for this on how i can cut off work moved out of town developed sops to identify if action was needed or if it could wait yeah yeah and, and you know he's he's living his own words it, those aren't just empty typed uh, sentences mm. every day every morning and and sometimes twice a day i see a salty jinx just freaking getting after it he's a man of action not just a man of words 100 yes. percent. um okay here we go so we got uh, terminal city training i was just in a meeting with a retired local police chief and during his tenure as chief he implemented mandatory annual talks with psychologists for every staff member civilians included Nice. That is outstanding. Um, okay, so we had this question from Carl earlier. I wanted to hit it up. And I think it it plays into the workplace. It's also about family, but kind of both. But I wanted to put this up because it is a very good question. He says, I guess I can't type fast enough. Have any of you had at one point, uh, had at one point, tell your family to give you a moment after an exercise or task and had your family upset with you for setting the boundary? I the question would be, how can a person have a more constructive conversation with family? But the reason I put... I reason I add this into the workplace is that you can have a really hard time having constructive conversations with leadership as well. And I think they kind of play into each other, at least in my mind. What do you guys think? Yeah, I actually had the opposite. Um, I was a new dad and I would, uh, you know, after a long shift, I would try to rush in because I hadn't been home and I wanted to help. But uh, my wife pretty quickly recognized I wasn't in the space to be of any help. I was going to be a body there, but I was going to be moody I didn't have my workout, all these things, right? So she actually addressed it and said, hey, I, I see what you're doing. I appreciate it. However, I would love, I would prefer to go another half hour, 45 minutes, whatever. If you wanted to stay in the garage and sling some weights around and come back and be like a little woosah, a little, a little more, you know, left. Dude, that's so up. awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic wife, right? But yeah, um, killer. To answer, yeah, to answer Carl's question, I think the key is, having those conversations, having those constructive 
um, not judgmental uh, conversations ahead of time. Uh, this is something I preach to my new my new people saying, hey, with all the stress of the job, everyone's going to be different. Every spouse in every interaction is going to be different. Some officers prefer to just dump all the stuff and the trauma they see. And some spouses want to hear it and others don't want to share the trauma, right? And you, everyone's going to be different as far as what they share, how they share it. And for some people, it might just be, hey, honey, it was one of those really bad calls today, so I'm going to be a little off. Or maybe you don't even need to say that. Maybe it's already understood when you say, hey, it's going to be one of those bad calls. Oh, okay, Eric, that means he's going to be kind of staring at a wall. It's not personal if he is. Uh, he's going to be a lot more quiet. I might have to repeat myself a couple of times. And so if you can address it ahead of time, and I think that goes to the question, setting the expectations, um, I think that you can come to a much more common ground rather than being the moment where we insert all these emotions and all these things. It's like, he's not listening. I told him twice, all this other stuff, right? I think that just comes down to basic uh, couples conversating, um, which I'm not an expert on. I can just speak on it when I'm outside of the bazaar. Just like everyone else. <laughs> just like everyone else, I can say something that sounds correct, but in the moment, yeah, I'm just like everyone else. It's tough one. Jim or Sean, you got any thoughts? Jim? Yeah, I think it goes back to my earlier comment too. Like certain people are gonna fit together because they're they're similar or they're a you know a perfect complement to each other. And if if they're not either one of those things, then you better have some some very open, honest communication and uh, and and be clear about what you need. Mm -hmm. Sean, I think as a good leader, you should get real good at pattern recognition. And it's never taught. Uh, it's never really kind of discussed as a you best get better at pattern recognition within your own troops, within your own, the people that you're responsible for. If there's a guy who likes to talk a lot, but all of a sudden he's quiet, or if there's a guy who's always quiet and all of a sudden he's talking a lot, whatever it is, lock in a pattern, a baseline pattern on the individuals that are working with you or for you. And then if there's a delta, if there's a shift that is notable to you within that pattern recognition, address it immediately. The same for at home. Uh, my family knows my pattern. Uh, when I came back and I said, you know what, uh, I just need about a, a day after Haiti to just kind of process. Like I rarely ever say that. So when I say that, it's like a thunderclap from the heavens, you know, like it's, whoa, did that just happen? And no one freaks out about it. But they just know that if I say it out loud, it's because I need it. And so most of my life, I've internally processed, of course, and I've locked all of that stuff down because my family doesn't need to know a bunch of things. And, and so that's just my way. But when I verbalize out to the world that, hey, just hang on a sec, I need a few, everyone gives me a few. That's a great point. Yeah. I think that uh, it can, we, can be, we can overuse it as well if you get used to taking right. that second versus really needing it kind of deal. Yeah. If I can jump in, like in yeah, the theme absolutely. of this whole day, and then even uh, this is what it popped in my mind when Seb's comment, but peer support, right? The power mm -hmm. of peer support, and that goes directly in with workplace, that goes directly in with pattern recognition is it's your people that you work day to day with. It's your people, you should notice if something's just a little bit off. And it's not about wearing a peer support team hat, you know, like we have official teams and designees. Uh, but I tell my people in my agency, Hey, you work here, peer support is your responsibility. It's not the sergeant's responsibility. It's not the peer counselor's responsibility. It's not an MHP's responsibility. It's really just saying all hands on deck. 
because everyone that you work with, you should, you should check in, see how they're doing. And if something feels off, you should have the courage, just approach them about it, talk about it, open that door, let them know abundantly clear that you are there to listen and you're there to be non-judgmental if they have it, if they have the need. Uh, I mean, that's going to carry so much and that's going to absolve a lot of these issues of people kind of going unnoticed and uncared for. That's a great point. Jim or Sean, you got any thoughts? Go ahead, Jim. No, uh, over, over to you. Yeah, okay, okay. I just, the idea uh, to piggyback on that is right from the get go, right? As soon as you get, in fact, even while you're in the academy, you, you've got two jobs. You've got your job in front of you and you've got the person to your left and right. That's the other job. And the higher up you get, the closer you get to the tip of the spear, whatever that means to anyone, the job becomes more about to your left and right than it does to the thing in front of you. Because at that point, whatever, bring it. But you need someone on your left and right to bring it with you. And it's not a case of don't hold me back or don't get in front of me. It's we're a freaking team. And our team will always crush. And so um, if you want to go out and uh, be all that you can be, do the best that you can in life and et cetera, it's, it's a solo journey, but it's always better if you've got someone to your left and right. And so ensure that right from the get-go, day one, you're paying attention not just to you, but also how to raise all boats around you. That's a great point. Uh, Glenn just hit us back. Uh, it says it was picked up in a conversation. I think Jim will be able to speak to it better than I can in BC officers recommend charges versus laying them. So the crown takes it the rest of the way. And then he also says also my decompression techniques are all conducted before I step foot in the door. That's great. A hundred percent. But yeah, I didn't know that uh, officers recommend charges. Versus yeah, that, that's a, that's a big control issue and a, a source of workplace stress is someone can you know put their heart and soul into a file and then they have to hand it off to somebody else and they have absolutely no control over that before. So it's, uh, or sorry, after that point. So it's, you, you got to learn how to manage that because you, you just don't have any control over that. So, so you don't get to take it to the finish line. You do not. That's oh, wow. incredibly stressful, right? Mm -hmm. Two, two years of your life could go into wow. a file and you just, that's it. It's yeah, not your decision anymore. So. That's yeah, an entire different podcast. Oh, yes. Eric, yeah, what's the up? Pros the prosecutors are the ones that determine. I mean, you make recommendations, but they're the ones who file it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and that's what he was saying, you know, knowing when your job ends, when that file is closed and handed off to somebody, I think that's to be able to just accept that that is. It's still, I can imagine it would be stressful. I don't know what that's like by any means. Um, one more quick comment here, and then we'll do some final thoughts. Salty Jinx says, as a team lead, I think it's important to enforce the idea. We take care of those who take care of us and keep your people and chain in mind always. And I really like this word right here, enforce the idea. It's not about just having the idea. It's not about just thinking about it. It's about enforcing it. If you're going to set a culture of support, set a culture of support and be supportive. Yeah. And by enforcing, I only read this, the standard the standard never shifts. It is the standard. This is what you do always, period. Don't even change the sentence. It's the standard. Standard is the standard. Standard is uh, the standard. Now, a great conversation, guys. I have uh, really appreciate it. I think we've hit some really actionable items throughout and uh, opened the conversation up quite a bit. Uh, so I do want to say thanks, Jim and Eric. Always 
pleasure having you. you guys on. Well, Eric, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. By all means. Yeah, pleasure's mine. Good first showing. <laughs> Coming nice out swinging, right? Thank you. Uh, and so let's hit some final thoughts. Eric, what do you got? My final thought is something that just popped up, but uh, it was what you said, Sean, about being closer to the tip of the spear. The, the higher you are in leadership, it should be more about the people next to you. I think that a lot of leaders, managers get that wrong, right? They make it about mission, mission, mission. But we need to remember as leaders, and I think that everyone tuning in is a strong leader in the right regard. It shows that your mindset's in the right place, that you're tuning in for men's mental health topics. Uh, it shows that you know what is important, but it is the people, right? If you don't have the people, you're not going to have anyone to do the mission. You're going to be doing it by yourself, uh, which is not leadership. It's the, the opposite of. So uh, I love that point. I think that it needs to be reminded and preached. Uh, I haven't actually heard it in those terms, um, but we collectively um, as a culture do get it wrong a lot. Yeah. Jim, final thoughts? Yeah, just figure out what your uh, your personal source of workplace stress is, attack it head on, and then uh, dismiss what you can't control because it's going to eat you alive. So figure out your process, figure out your people, your peer group, and just just pay attention to, to what it is and attack it before it, uh, before it gets to you. So. I like it. Sean? Uh, so we have spent uh, the appropriate amount of time to discuss this conversation through the lens of our familiar industries, whether it's military or policing. Uh, of course, a lot of this stuff, if not all of it, translates directly across laterally to every single freaking industry and career out there. As you were all talking, I was thinking uh, in the closing comments, as I I owned a coffee shop, a second cup in downtown Calgary for a couple of years, and you know I'd have 10 staff behind the uh, counter, uh, nine of them girls, one guy, and that was new to me, having to manage a whole bunch of... Uh, young ladies uh, uh, coming from tier one. So uh, as I was trying to figure out how to do all of that, I just simply defaulted back to how I led men, how I led teams, how I led missions, how I led everything. And so from the time I left tier one until today, anyone who I've been involved with has been like JTF2 trained. They just don't know it. They don't know how to sharpen a knife as a coffee slinger. They don't need to know that. They just need to know that I'm going to effectively lead them. They're going to effectively follow. If they've got issues, it comes straight up to me. If I've got issues, it goes straight down to them. We have conversations that are open and transparent and are all about mission focused and doing it better. But I never, ever let them feel or think or, or wonder if I wasn't in the game for them. My staff knew that they came first and the mission came second to some degree, which is flippity flop for the military. Mission has priority and that's it, that's all. But in all of my other careers, it's uh, care and safety of my troops or the people who I'm working with and the mission will get done when it gets done. I like that. Again, I think you, you need to get that uh, mic flip back because... God, he's hitting it. <laughs> uh, I do really, again, really appreciate the conversation. I think we have hit quite a lot of stuff. So says Carl. Thank you, collective crew. Glenn, epic conversation today, fellas. Y'all nothing but gold. Terminal City, good conversation, guys. So, yeah, I think we hit uh, we hit some points. Thanks, fellas. Perhaps doing pretty well. And as we learned more about our own uh, abilities and inabilities to manage our stress. As we build our ability to manage said stress, we can grow into better men, 
better people and just be better all around. And you can do that here with us on The Collective every day. We'll see you all tomorrow. Chimo. Chimo.